This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. Now, on to my episode with Scott Schreer. I thank my lucky stars that I got into the business and my success came when it came because the odds of it would have happened today if I came into it today would be exponentially against me. Against me. Against me. Against me. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they move, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to the Silent Giants Podcast. A podcast highlighting the superstars behind your favorite superstars in creative industries. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. This week's Silent Giant is drummer and television theme song composer Scott Schreer. Scott has composed iconic jingles for brands like Snickers and Coca Cola but he's most notably known for creating the super recognizable theme song for the NFL and Fox. He's also responsible for making the theme music for Major League Baseball, the NHL, and NASCAR for the Fox Network. In this episode, Scott sits down to chat about growing up in Brooklyn, his love for the game of baseball, how he broke into the television industry, explains the makings of the iconic NFL theme song, and a whole lot more. This guy's story is absolutely amazing. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the drummer, composer, entrepreneur, baseball enthusiast, my friend, the silent giant, Scott Schreer. Boom, boom. Hello, testing one, two. There we go. This sounds good. This sounds, sounds fantastic. Really good. Yep. What's up, Scott? How you doing? I'm doing good, Corey. How are you? You know, I, I can't front. I was definitely nervous for this interview. Yeah. Well, you know what? Because you're, you're the mystery man. All right. And so a lot of times I have time to prep for an interview. Yeah. But you don't do a lot of interviews. You're, no, I you, do not. You were the secret man. Well, I, I do keep a very low profile, but, you know, that's like my personality. You're you like know? the Rod Temperton of, of the, the commercial world. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a studio musician. You know, and that's how I made my living and supported my family as I was building my career as a producer, composer, you know. Um, did a couple hundred sessions a year in and around this area where we are right now, like this 20-block area. Um, pretty much right out of college, you know. And I was always a behind-the-scenes guy. Yeah. And I felt I was a drummer, so I, I well, I was. I, I consider myself, I'm still a drummer, but back then I was playing drums full-time. Um, I was very comfortable behind the glass with my headphones on, like I have them on now. You yeah. Know? Sitting behind my drum set, whatever studio I was at that minute. And, uh, you know, I just got very accustomed to hearing myself and having anonymity, you know. I'd, I'd go 
to a store and I'd hear music that I just played on last week, you know, playing in a commercial somewhere or something I wrote, you know, playing on national TV during the Super Bowl or, or you know, it was a cool feeling, but like I knew it. Sometimes I felt like I wanted to say, hey, that's me, you know, but <laughs> you, you don't do that. You know, you got to check your, yeah, you, know, you got to check yourself, right? And I, I was always like, I'm cool, you know, I, I know it, you know, my wife knows it, you know, my right. kids know it, my friends know it, but that was it, you know. I never blurted out to somebody, hey, that I wrote that, you know, or hey, that's me playing on that, you know. But, well, why, why is that? Um, yeah, I don't, you know, I always felt that the richest people I ever met, you couldn't tell by looking at them. Right. You know, and guys that used to say, hey, you know, I... I have a lot of prowess, you know, I could really, I really, yeah, you know, I, I, I date a lot of women or, you know, I, I make a lot of money. Those are the guys that usually don't make a lot of money. Are sitting home Friday night, you know, eating, you know, beans and chili or whatever and, <laughs> you know, don't have money to pay their rent. So I, I always kind of felt like, you know, you keep it, you keep it on the down low and you go, you're cool, you know. I also thought before meeting you that you would be very shy, but you're a very social guy. Yeah, yeah, I could be, I can be, you know, I. I think I'm more reclusive than I am, uh, you know, a social guy. But I, I've been told I can be sociable, you know. But I, I, I don't. I'm not a big. I don't like crowds. I don't. I don't gravitate towards big events. I, I never did. You know. I just, I'm, I'm comfortable in my own space, and I kind of like that. You know. Uh, are you from New York? I'm from Brooklyn. Born and raised. Yeah, you know, when I was in when I was in uh, in public school, I guess you know, I went to PS two fifty five. Yeah, where, 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 where is that in in Brooklyn? In Flatbush. Flatbush. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and I used to come home from school, and on the third floor window of the apartment building I lived in, this guy was playing guitar, man, and it was like it sounded like the Beatles to me. You know, the guy was amazing. You know, and it wound up being this guy named Jerry Friedman, who, when I started playing sessions. I met Jerry Friedman, and the guy was the guy that invented like the single note disco guitar thing, da, 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 you know, that mm-hmm. Sheik used and all these guys started using. And that was him. And then, I, you know, there's a couple of really famous studio players that came out of Brooklyn. Another drummer I know, Alan Schwartzberg, was, I owe a lot to, you know, because he always used to come late to sessions. And the people that used to book me on percussion, I used to cover the drums until he showed up. And then somebody said, hey, you know, that guy's pretty good. You should call him next time. <laughs> so that, I kind of broke into, like, the session thing, thanks to Alan. So thanks, Alan, if you're listening to this. Cause so your first instrument was uh, drums. Piano, actually. Piano. Yeah. And, so, and what age was, it, was this? Yeah, so without getting too, like, you know, emotional about it, you know, my parents were divorced when I grew up. <laughs> I, I, you know, I used to see my friend Johnny go out for dinner with his family, and I'd look, my mother was working trying to support us, and my dad was nowhere around. But there was this thing in the living room, this piano, you know. I said, shit, I may as well go over and start learning how to play the piano. So I started taking piano lessons when I was like six or seven. Okay. You know, and uh, I had a natural feel and ability for it. You know, I had a good ear, and, but I wanted to learn how to read. And so I studied. I took lessons for a number of years. And then uh, when I was 13, I got a set of drums and I kissed off the piano lessons and started studying drums like majorly full time up and through college, you know. And I'm always intrigued by uh, folks in New York who pick up drums because yeah. 
how do you become good at drums in New York? Yeah, in an apartment. Well, th that ironically, my uncle who lived upstairs for me was a milkman. I mean, can you imagine? The guy had to sleep during the day because he worked at night. You know, he'd get up at midnight. You know. Yeah. And I'd come home from school at three o'clock, and I'd run into my room, and my drums were there. You know, and I'd put on some music on my stereo, and I'd set passion away for hours at a time. And my uncle was like, his bedroom was right upstairs for me, and he never complained, not once. Like this could never happen in Brooklyn now. No, but now, the, but now the, but, that apartment building is worth like ten million. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> but the the woman, I, the woman who lived next door to us was a was a, was an elderly woman back then. I mean, elder. She was probably in her fifties or sixties when I was a kid. Okay. Her name was Lillian, and I used to come home from the school from school, and I used to see her hanging out the window, looking at people coming down the street. You know, and when I would play drums, she would be banging on the wall and yelling at my mother to tell me to stop. And then she ultimately moved to Florida, and then she sent my mother and I letters saying that she still heard me playing drums when she moved to Florida. From, <laughs> so, you know, I, I felt bad for all the people that, like, were listening to me learn my craft back then. But, you know, I, I had the toughest time doing a press roll. That was really what I wanted to learn, how to, how to get a drum roll, like two strokes with each hand. And so, yeah. you, you know, you could start it, but getting it was like, when, when is it going to come? You know, I used to come home and lock myself in the room and, you know, there was no internet, so you couldn't go to YouTube. Well, how do you do a press roll, you know? Um, and I practiced on my pillow. A friend of mine told me, you know, if you can do it on a pillow, it strengthens you when you get onto a drum. And then one day, bang, there it was, you know, and then I started studying really seriously. I, I studied with some amazing drum teachers in New York. I was uh, very fortunate. Um, back then, The Tonight Show was with Ed Shaughnessy, okay. and there was a guy named Sonny Igo, and I studied with, for years with a guy named Joe Casadas, all within five blocks from here. This is before The Tonight Show moved out to the West Coast. You know, I'm really dating myself now, you know? <laughs> you know just, well, just now like, they're out in but, Burbank? Huh? Isn't it Burbank now? Yeah, yeah, out in Burbank, yeah. Because what, what were some of your uh, early musical influences? Yeah, you know, the Beatles, man. I mean, I... The Beatles were everything for me. I mean, I, I, I went out and bought Beatle boots the minute I saw them wearing it on the Ed Sullivan show. You know, I, you know, I didn't have much money growing up, but I managed to scrape enough money together to go get some Beatle boots. Cause what did your, your mom do for a living? Yeah, she was a secretary, you know. I mean, we, we scraped by. I mean, barely. I mean, I didn't realize we were poor, you know, but we were pretty poor growing yeah. up. Uh, you know, paint chips coming off the ceiling and all that. Because what, what was your train stop in, in Brooklyn? East 18th Street. Uh, uh, Quentin Road and Avenue R. Okay, there. you're yeah, true yeah, blue Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. True I blue. True blue. You know, I thought the world started and ended within, like, you know, a couple of blocks from where I lived. You know, I didn't really... I was a baseball fanatic, though. So it was, it was music. Well, actually, it was baseball, and then it was music. That was, that was my favorite thing, and I... I had a guy friend in the building who I thought was a phenomenal, talented, like runner, baseball player, you know, athlete, and we just used to live, eat, sleep, baseball. You know, that was pretty much what we did every day. And then you know, I, it was baseball and music, baseball and music, baseball and music, and then baseball music and girls, baseball music, girls. You know, that and kind of thing. When did you, um, your your love for the drums turn into you? Were you in a band? Oh yeah, I was I was in tons of bands in Brooklyn. I remember schlepping my drums by myself in cabs and cars with friends and family. Anybody I can get to help me to bring my drums, yeah. And I played a lot. Did you know like, you know, a lot of times for the folks that I've interviewed, mm -hmm. some of them knew or some of them didn't know that they wanted to pursue it kind of as a career early on. 
it, it kind of some for some folks it was a hobby that they kind of staggered into. Was it yeah. that way for you? No, I I I didn't know about being a professional musician early on. I like I said, I I was really into sports, um, but I was not big enough to really make it as a as a professional. I didn't think as a professional baseball player, you know. And uh, although I can throw and run and hit, I you know, my balls went straight, you know, and I didn't have, I don't have humongous hands. I couldn't really control the ball like I really wanted to as a pitcher. And then I broke my ankle like three times, so my speed started waning. And, uh, you know, when I got into college and I started to see the level of athleticism in, in the, some of these guys, I just realized that, you know, my dreams of, you know, playing for the Mets or the Yankees was probably not ever going to happen. But It's like the story of every musician. Every musician wants to be... Uh, an athlete, yeah. and then you're like, you know what? Yeah. You can't get girls getting this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I never had any problem getting girls, so that wasn't really the problem, you know. But I did want to play baseball. But uh, you know, I played in an over forty league. I mean, I had it bad. You know, I was I was really into it. I even played in a money league. I was, I would never turn down the chance to play in a, any kind of competitive, like either baseball, hardball, or softball game. Yankees or team? You know. They were this year, I'll say that, yeah. you know, but my dad used to take us to the Mets, you know, when we started having a little bit of a relationship, so I kind of have a fond memory of going to Shea Stadium with my, my dad a couple of times, so I, I chased the Mets, unfortunately. 69, man. Yeah, totally, you know, and I, 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 go to, I go to as many games as I can now, you know. I don't have a box or anything like that, but I think about it every year, but I don't, <laughs> I don't do it. Hold on, wait, how, how can the guy who does the, the theme song not, not get the box? I feel yeah, like it's like a, yeah, come on, dude. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I got a lot going on, as you probably noticed. You know, I got, I got a couple of companies here, and life's been good. And, and so, you know, from, from your you know, band experience yeah. early on, how did that, you said you went to college. Yeah, so I went to, I went to LIU, and I majored in uh, music theory and education. Okay. Um, I was really fortunate that I had just like a great education. It wasn't known for being a music school, but um, the prof one of my professors uh, took about six or seven of us under his wing like early on. I think he intuitively like sensed there was some talent amongst the, the ranks there. And he, I think he counted me in as one of the potentials that you know he just wanted a mentor. Yeah. And um, I was really fortunate. I never missed a day of school, man. I, I went in with like a 67 average and I came out of there, you know, with a 375 index. So, you know, I did really good in school. Uh, I loved my, my learning experience in college. Um, I, like I said, I majored in music theory and education and I just couldn't get enough of it. You know, once I learned how to read music and, and understand and appreciate what instruments could really do when they're combined properly and what they sound like and the amount of potential that you could do with, you know, your pencil on a piece of paper. Um, it just opened up a whole other level of living for me. And I, I you know, I fancied myself like, a, you know, a, an arranger, not just, a, not just a writer, you know, not just a composer. Um, and that was, that was like the beginning of it for me. And then a friend of mine introduced me to some guys in New York City. Now, don't forget, I led a sheltered life. You know, I used to live in Flatbush. I used to go to LIU on the D train. I used to go back home to Flatbush, and that was kind of it for me. And then I'd go play ball on the weekends, you know. Um, and I came to the Manhattan one day, and I met a bunch of musicians, and met a bunch of musicians from there. And next thing you know, I'm in the studio, and I got to play on a session one day because the drummer didn't show up. And that was the most uh, addictive 
thing that I've ever done in my entire life. When I put those headphones on for the first time and there was an engineer on the other side of the glass pushing the faders up and just like I'm hearing my voice through these headphones now and I was hearing what I was playing with reverb and, you know. Yeah. Holy moly. (laughs) You can do that? Wow, you know. That was it. That That was all I ever wanted to do from that point forward was play, you know. Uh, but what I didn't know back then was to become a studio musician, it was beyond competitive, you know, as a drummer in New York, because there's a lot of talent. And you had to play to what's called a click track. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because everything has to be exact to TV, right? So this guy gave me a chance to come play drums on a session, and he puts the click track. He says, can you play to a click track? I said, sure, you know. I had no idea what a click track was, you know. I go sit at the drums. Next thing you know, I, and, my, and the guy's going, one, two, a one, two. And I was nowhere near the click track. So he calls me up after the session. I mean, I don't know how I struggled through that session. It was pretty bad, you know? I mean, I could play, but I couldn't play to the click track. Yeah. He calls me, he says, let me ask you a question. He says, yeah. He goes, uh, is there anything else you thought you might want to do in your life and your career? Because you're never going to make it as a drummer. <laughs> I went home and I cried my eyes out. I mean, I just, I sobbed like you could not believe. I mean, my eyes are welling up now just thinking about that. And uh, long story short, I became that guy's number one drummer like a year and a half later. I mean, I just went home and woodshed to a click track like nobody's business, you know? (laughs) I mean, I didn't even hear the click track. I was so good at it at that point. It didn't matter. They could change the tempo midstream and I'd still be dead on. As a matter of fact, I could push it. I could slow it down. I could play on top of it, behind it, with one hand tied behind my back. The guy looked at me like, "Holy Mac, what did you do?" You know. I go, well, you know. Well, you know, it's always those those mm-hmm. moments of defeat that make you better. That well, that was about this biggest defeat as I think I've ever had as a musician. <laughs> that was pretty bad, you know. But it definitely uh, it inspired me and it made me a lot better. So. Then, you know, I, I built up a bit of a reputation to being able to play to a click track, you know, just call Scotty, you know, that kind of thing. And then, this is a cool story. So in 1983, you probably weren't even born yet, I had one of those big-ass humping Motorola cell phones, right? <laughs> those big ones? You know? Yeah. Yeah, I was making a decent living as a player, so I invested in technology, right? And uh, there's a serv- there was a service in Manhattan. If you made it to a certain level as a player... You, you got onto what's called radio registry, and they only handled studio musicians. And the reason for that was because there was about 25 or 30 sessions going on between 10 and 3 o'clock in the afternoon in, in this 20-block radius we're sitting in back in the 80s, right? Yeah. You know, Snickers, M&M's, Miller Beer, Coca-Cola. I mean, you, American, you name it. They were going on like crazy. There was 25, 30 studios within 10 blocks from where we're sitting right here. And if you were good enough, you got onto Radio Registry, and the production companies would book you through your service, through Radio Registry. They'd say, oh, you know, tell Scotty we have a, a Coke demo from 10 to 11 at, you know, record plan, you know. And then they'd call you, and they'd say, your, your, your schedule is clear. Can you accept it? Yes. And they'd keep track of your schedule. So I'm on 55th and 6th Avenue. I just finished some demo for some client. I don't know what the product was. And I had my phone. My phone rings. And it was Marianne, who Marianne was my assigned person at Radio Register. She says, where are you? I said, I'm on 55th and 6th. She says, oh, great. Can you see 1356th Avenue? I said, yeah, it's right across the street. She goes, get up there. I said, why? He goes, 
they're doing this Cosby show, and, and Bernard Purdy didn't show up. <laughs> I said, are you sure? He says, yeah. They, I said, who recommended? He said, Marcus Miller recommended I used to do a lot of sessions with Marcus Miller, the bass player. Yeah. Yeah. So I go up there, and I walk into this thing, right? And I'm like the only white guy there, you know? I mean, there's like this black producer and this black engineer and this uh, African-American arranger and... Richard T. is now playing piano, and um, Marcus Miller's on bass, and then all of a sudden I see uh, Grover Washington. I mean, I never, I never met Grover Washington, right? And I'm walking in there, and who's this white guy coming in here, you know? And oh, it's I, Scotty. Yeah, yeah it's Scotty, you know? <laughs> and, and, and I see, I see uh, Marcus go, yeah, he's cool, he's cool, he's cool, you know? And I could, I could really play, like, R&B. I mean, I always had, like, a... I don't know, man, what it is. I, I just was able to do it really well. It's a Brooklyn thing, man. It's a Brooklyn thing. You know, and, you know, I had that gig for almost three years, man. I mean, I killed it, and I, because Purdy didn't show up. You know? Wow. Yeah, it was incredible. And, and also at this time, is the Cosby show is, is a hit show at this time. Oh, yeah, it's a hit show. And it was the original Cosby show, right? And uh, the story gets better. So, you know, I had that gig for at least three years, you know, that it was that, that, I, that I did that gig. And I, we, it was great. I mean, Bill was, you know, he was really on his game. And, uh, you know, he fancied himself a jazz guy, you know. And he used to bring in these famous jazz players, like, out of the woodwork, you know, he'd bring them in and have them sit with the band. You know, they never really got any credit for it because it was a behind-the-scenes thing. But every every Cosby episode was was scored, you know, mm. and it was it was a great experience, and I made a lot of friends. You know, the Brecker brothers were on it, you know, Randy and Michael Brecker. Michael's passed away a couple of years ago, but um, Randy's a famous trumpet player. But was that your introduction into the <coughs> television world? Uh, no, not really. You know, um, I had done a bunch of sessions. But I was writing commercials at that point as well. So I was trying to get arrested as a composer, you know, with some of the jingle houses in New York. So, Because um, how did that happen for you, being the studio drummer, and then all of a sudden, how did your television the thing happen? career kind of start? What was your first job? Yeah, so I'll tell you that. So um, that's another good story. So I had my own um, jingle company, you know, called uh, NJJ Music. Uh, that that you, you started your own company? I did, yeah. And uh, I started pimping myself out as a compo as a writer for jingles, you know. And I started working for... And how did that idea like, come about? You oh, started, started yeah. Company? Uh, I was writing. I was ghosting for a lot of companies. And I was winning jobs, you know. And I decided that I didn't want to continue to let them take the bulk of the money and win all the money, you know. So I, I started my own company out of my out of my apartment and then ultimately built my own studio and, you know, started doing commercials full time as a production company. Okay. In addition to playing. So it was really funny. It, it was ironic. I, I was getting called to play on competitors commercials that my company was also writing on, but everybody knew I was cool. And it did, you know, if they hired me as a musician, they hired me as a drummer and that was cool. I, you know, I, I didn't care how good or bad their, their competitive spot was. If, if I was working on a spot for, you know, Pepsi for somebody, and I was working on the same campaign, trying to win it as a composer, most of the guys were cool because they knew they hired me as a drummer, they got the drummer, they weren't getting, like, some spy looking to see what they were doing, so I would, you know. And uh, so I, I, I had a lot of good relationships going on, and um, 
Yeah, I, I, I did really well as a production company, as Jeff alluded to out there. Um, you know, I, I had some really big commercials as a, as a jingle writer. We did, uh, we did Snickers, Satisfies You, for a number of years. You make me real hungry. <laughs> when I'm hungry, I'm not a very good listener. Snickers satisfies you. Say the truth, I keep a Snickers bar in the third drawer of my desk. Takes the edge off my hunger and fills me up just fine. Packed with peanuts, peanut butter nougat, caramel, and milk chocolate. Mmm. Satisfies you. Packed with peanuts, Snickers really satisfies. When it seems like forever to my next meal, Snickers holds me over beautifully. Wow. Yeah, uh, Bubblicious, the ultimate bubble. I did Less Filling Tastes Great for Miller Beer. Um, Farfig Nougan, say the word for Volkswagen. Um, Every year, it seemed like I had one major big campaign that played on the Super Bowl, you know, for a number of years. And, you know, I just, I worked like a madman, man. I just, I just, I was one of the guys, you know, one of the companies in New York that hit it for whatever reason, you know. I just, I had a good team, support staff, I had great writers with me, great engineers, you know, great studio. Everything always sounded good. I was always a fanatic for making things sound like a record, even when I started out early on. Because yeah, what was, what was that first, like, big break introduction, though, like, to get into that world, I felt like someone had to call you up and say, hey, "We have this this yeah. jingle." I was 27 years old, and uh, I was working for McCann Erickson on Lexington Avenue, and um, they were doing what was called Coca-Cola Exploratories. Uh, they would, you know, they didn't have digital tape back then. Every time they wanted to record something, they had to hire a band, they had to book the studio, they had to bring real players in, and they had to record it. If they wanted to change a note or a bar, they couldn't go into Pro Tools and dice and slice and replace. They had to call the band back in and that kind of thing. So um, they, were, they were overwhelmed with the amount of demos they were doing for Coke one year. And the arranger said to the producer at McCann, you know, I don't think I could do any more. Why don't you give Scotty a chance at one of these, you know? And the guy threw a lyric at me, and he says, hey, can you do this for tomorrow? I said, yeah. He says, well, if we have time, we'll record it at the back of the session. I was 27, right? Um, I went home. Barry White was like a big favorite of mine, you know, Love Unlimited Orchestra. Mm -hmm. I saw them at Radio City when he was playing there years and years ago. So, you know, I, I graduated college. I fancied myself like an up-and-comer kind of thing, you know, and I had all these books on top of my Fender Rhodes piano in my apartment, you know, the combination of instruments and how to get good sounds and grooves and yada, yada. And, you know, I, I wanted to come up with something cool, you know. So I put on Barry White, and I got into the mood, you know, and I started playing the piano and coming up with some chord progression against these lyrics, and that turned out to be Have a Coke and a Smile. and a smile makes you feel good. Right. I didn't write the lyrics, but I wrote the melody. So I'm sitting in the studio the next day. They're going through 15, 20 demos, and I'm sitting there like, you know, a kid waiting for his chance to get up at the plate. And uh, it's like 10 to 5. They have the studio to 5 o'clock kind of thing. Everybody's running out. The engineer's got 10 minutes left. The producer from McCann says, hey, Scotty, why don't, you, uh, why don't you run a click track, go out there, play the drums and piano, and I'll get one of these guys to come in and sing it, and this guy to play guitar on it. And if it sounds like anything, we'll present it to the client tomorrow. 
And I had like 15 minutes to do it. And, and I went out and I played drums and piano to the click track. And the guy came out and played guitar. And the other guy came in and sang it. We mixed it in 30 seconds and threw it on the back of the tape. They went to present to the client the next day a Coke. And the McCann guy calls me up the next day and says, you know, the only thing the guy liked was your song, you know? And we're going to do this as the, like the campaign kind of thing. And I went, holy. You can't wow. Me, right? 27. I said, I just wrote like Your a, first break was Coca-Cola? Coca-Cola. And then I left McCann and I started my own jingle company uh, with the only thing on my reel was have a Coke and a smile. And I sent it to five or six major advertising agencies in New York City. And I got a call within a couple of weeks from back, uh, Ted Bates Advertising. And the guy said to me, uh, hey, did you write this? I go, yeah. He goes, uh, I'd like to see you at 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. I, have, I might have a job for you. So I went in and I met this guy, Arnold, and uh, he said to me, you ever hear of Snickers? I said, yeah. He goes, yeah, we're trying to come up with a new campaign, and uh, Snickers satisfies you. Can you come up with something? So I said, yeah, I think I can come up with something. Yeah. I went home and did a demo in my apartment on some four-track piece of crap, you know, and brought it back to him. And I was, yeah, it's pretty good. Well, it's, and he calls his assistant to book the session for the next day or whatever. Snickers satisfies you, satisfies you. You know, that was like the campaign for like seven years. I don't know, something like that. Now, now you're, you're composing the music now yeah. with, the, with the lyrics. Are you coming up with the lyrics too no, at this point? No, no, I'm not the lyricist, man. You don't want me to write lyrics. <laughs> so so, are, are, so there, was there a, a writer? Yeah, copywriters give you, you know, they work at the agency. They come up with the campaign ideas and the slogans and, it whittles down to the music department director, and then he hires guys like me to go out and come up with some ditty, you know? Now, as you being uh, the, the head of the company, are you, was there a favorite writer that you worked with? Oh, man, I, I was blessed beyond belief. Now, I, you know, when you have a company like I had, you got to work with some, you know, the cream of the crop, not just musicians, but, you know, people. I would get writing reels like 20 a week from people that wanted to come write with me, work with me. Just be next to me at the, you know, do any, get me coffee, you know, cigarettes, whatever, just to get into the business, you know. So I had like my pick of who I wanted to work with, and you, you know, you need, it, it takes a village to run a production jingle company. It's not right. just one guy back then. So you know, I was wow, I had some amazingly talented people to work with, you know. You might, you had to have great vocalists as well. Oh yeah, I used to get. 50 reels a month from singers that wanted to come sing in, you know, but I had my favorites, you know. Uh, I worked with some, I worked with Michael Bolton before he hit it big, you know. Wow. Luther Vandross was uh, my you buddy. You just took the... Luther was, when Luther sang on a microphone, oh. dude, I have it, I have it, I have it, <laughs> no. listen, I have a tape, I, I once pitched this beer for, uh, Schaefer beer back in, I don't know, must have been... Schaefer, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was really good friends with Luther. Luther really liked me. I don't know why, but we had a mutual friend, and he, my friend Gordon, and we, we used to hang out. And uh, this is before Luther really made it, you know. And, uh, but, but when he sang, man, you, just, like, you couldn't believe that anybody could sound like that, I mean, in person, right? And I have this tape of him doing some demos for me uh, in my basement still, you know. He had, he had a... Um there was a, a, a commercial jingle that he did that ended up becoming one of his famous ad libs. Okay. Uh, oh man. He did a lot of he did a lot of jingles, man. Oh man. And he he was, I have to say, the sweetest, nicest person 
that you could ever like, like like when you see him smiling on TV and singing and just looking around and just you know lighting up. That's how he was in real life, man. That guy was just magical, wow. magical, magical. When he got in front of a microphone, you, you know, there were certain people that sound really good, and then there's another level that very few get to walk on, walk in, you know. And he was just, he just had that that it thing that very few guys had. Very was, expressive, very silky smooth. It was almost like a just like a Nat King Cole you know, richness. If there was a bullseye to singing, he was dead smack center right in it. There was no other way to describe it. He was just amazing, amazing. Wow. Miss him, man. I, I guess, was that like a popular way back in the day for a lot of artists to kind of break into the industry, into the oh, music industry, yeah. was through jingles? Oh, yeah, yeah, a lot of them, yeah. I worked with a lot of them, too, yeah, wow. definitely. That is yeah. remarkable. Yeah, it was pretty cool. It, listen, you know, it's, I, I don't know what to say. I, I, you know, from, from my upbringing to where I came from, it's almost as if there's like a divine, there's a divinity to my life's you know, my life's path. You know, I just, I, I can't believe some of the things that I've, I've been involved in and some of the things I've done. You know, I always tell people I've managed to do the most with the least out of anybody I've ever met, you know. And then people go, oh, you're, you know, you're being home or whatever, you know. I, you know, I had a lot of perseverance and I have, my mother, my mother gave me a lot of inspiration, you know. She, she inspired in me to follow my, my path and my dream and there's no reason I can't do anything I set out to do. Once you got into the, the production world of, of you know, advertising and, and making jingles, did your mm -hmm. love for you know, you know, maybe being in a band and, and going on tour, did that kind of go away? Uh, yeah, because you know, you, as a studio musician in New York, because it was so competitive, you know, I mean, I was one of 100 drummers that was probably capable, if not, you know, there were people way more capable than me to take that chair, right? And, you know, you work so hard to become the number three or the number fourth call in case the first two or three guys aren't available. And you just don't want to be on, out of town when they call you. Right. Because it took you so long to get to climb that ladder, you know. And you never knew whether that, the first call was going to come tomorrow, next month, or next year. So, and then once you got to be a first call for a music company, you always wanted to be available because you didn't want to give up that chair to the next guy that was waiting. Exactly. You know? So... I, I took very little vacations, you know. I was really, I was really married to that gig for like my whole drumming career, you know. I the the, the the you know the dreams of playing with Sting or going on tour, you know, they were always in the back of my mind. But I knew even if I got that call, I wouldn't do it. I couldn't do it, right? Because I, I I spent too much of my time invested in, you know, becoming a studio musician and getting a number one call from multiple music companies in New York. I, I didn't want a chance losing that because I knew how hard it was to get there, you know. Because no matter how good you are, there's always somebody better, right? No matter how good your pocket is, somebody's got a better pocket. No matter how good your click track playing is, somebody's <laughs> better at it, you know. So I just wanted to, you know, keep what I felt I, I, I worked really hard for and I was going to fight for it, you know. And the way I, I fought for it was being available, you know, at, at 24 hours a day. I had a beeper, I had a cell phone, I was on radio registry. I was always, I was Johnny on the spot, you know. And, and how, how many jingles would you say you were, you know, pushing out, yeah. let's say, weekly or monthly? Yeah, so, yeah, so I know that, actually. So um, I was doing about 
two to 250 commercials a year as a musician, as a player. And I was probably doing, you know, about, I would say, you know, two to 300 jingles a year as a production company. Wow. Not all finals, obviously, you know, the right. ratio was kind of, as the, as the business got more competitive, the chances of winning became less and less because instead of submitting one demo, music companies would hire five writers and submit 10 demos. You know, and when I started, maybe there were 20 good music houses and when I kind of exited and started writing theme music, there were, I don't know, a couple hundred. You know, now there's a couple thousand. Wow. Yeah. How did you get into the transition of doing sports? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So um, I'll try and make this interesting. Uh, so I was doing a lot of commercials and I just was wishing that I had an opportunity to do more, you know, more than 30 seconds, you know, and uh, I, met, I met this producer at NBC and uh, her sister worked at ABC and this was 1993 and there was a sports show on ABC back then called Why World of Sports. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, the guy who wrote that theme, his was name... That, was that Al Michaels on, on that? Uh, no, it was... Um, who the host of that? Wild World of Sports. Uh, Kirk Gowdy. Ah, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, so... Um, uh, but Kirk Gowdy Jr., Kirk Gowdy's son, was the main music guy at ABC here okay. in New York. And uh, they used a guy named um, Ed Kalehoff. Ed also wrote The Price is Right. Come on down. Yeah. So Ed Ed wrote the uh the arrangement on the Wide World of Sports theme. Dun, da, dun, 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 dun. But it was on the air for like, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And they wanted some like hip version of it, I guess. So my my friend Nancy, her sister, Lisa, convinced them that, hey, I know this guy, you know, he's like, he's kind of like an up-and-comer. Young guy, you know, he's he's hip. If you want to refresh this, he'll he'll do it. He's a drummer. He'll give it a, like a hip young sound kind of thing. Okay, so I was nervous as all hell, and I went up to ABC and I met I met Kurt Gowdy, you know, and he was kind of cool guy. I never, you know, he wasn't an ad guy. He was a network guy, you know. He says, uh, "Can you can you want to take a shot at doing something?" I said, "Sure." So, you know, I went back. Man, I had more than thirty seconds. I had like sixty seconds. To me, that was like it was like a novel, you know. And I, you know. I made it sound hip, you know, and I brought it back, and I had, like, this portable stereo back then, you know, the equivalent of, like, what Bose speakers would sound like back then. Yeah, ghetto blaster. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, separate speakers, though, and I brought in my little, you know, Walkman thing or whatever, and I played it on the table for him, and he, like, I had a subwoofer thing going on at the presentation. <laughs> he didn't know what was coming at him, you know, he goes, man, this sounds great, you know. So, uh, I started working for Kurt, you know, he started calling me for a bunch of stuff, and, uh, you know, I said, wow, doing this sports stuff is pretty cool. And then I got a call from Coca-Cola Atlanta at, at work, and they wanted me to do a, a, a Coke demo, which is pretty standard back then, you know. Except they said to me they wanted me to do it on spec. I don't know if you know what spec means, on speculation, meaning we're not going to pay you for it unless you win. That was like, that was when the, the business changed because there were so many, you know, supply and demand. There were so many companies vying for jingle work and production, you know, work for commercials that the agencies were in the, were, were in the, the king, in, 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 the, in, in the throne. You know, they, they said, you know what, there's so many guys that are trying to get into this. 
we're not even going to pay them for it. We're just going to give them a chance to win it. And we're only going to pay them if they win kind of thing. And she said, we want you to do it on spec. I said, yeah, I'll do it on spec. I said, I spec to get paid. That's what I'll do it on, you know? <laughs> so I called my team in at that point, And I said, you know what? This business has changed dramatically. We've been hitting it for, what, 15 years at that point. I said, you know, I'm not working for free. You know, if they want me to work for free, they're going to have to call somebody else. I'm not working for free. I'm not giving Coca-Cola, who's got hundreds of millions of dollars in sales, free music. Right. And only get paid if I win. I'm out, you know. Uh, and that's when I started pursuing TV stuff. I said, yeah, I'm going to try and find a different pond to swim in because this, this, is, this, is, this, one's, this one's draining the swamp pretty quick, you yeah. know. And... Uh, I, and then I, I was walking past this guy's office up at ABC one day who I was trying to get his attention to say hello. He was like the number three guy up at ABC in the music department. Okay. But he was the one who was responsible for finding Hank Williams. And are you ready for some football? Yeah, right? that was huge. His name is George. Hi, George. <laughs> George is my best friend, by the way. Hey, that's yeah, a good yeah, friend to have. 25, 30 years later. And... Uh, you know, the guy just wouldn't give me the time of day, you know, until he looked up one day, and I must have caught him at a good moment. He goes, hey, you're, uh, you're Nancy and Lisa's friend, right? I said, yeah. He said, come on now. i got a couple of minutes. And then uh, the rest is, as I say, is history. He said to me one day, he said, you know, I just don't have any possible advancement here. You know, Kurt's going to be the guy around here for a while, and, you know, I, I need to, like, spread my wings. And I got an opportunity to go out to L.A. This guy, Rupert Murdoch, starting this thing called Fox Sports. And uh, they were interviewing me to, to go out there and, you know, work with, work with uh, Fox Sports and be like the number two guy out there under the chairman, David. He said, and, uh, you know, um, the only, I'm going out next week on like a Monday or a Tuesday. It's like a Thursday the week before. And he says, they love to bring some music out because they know I did like the Hank Williams thing. They said, if you could bring some music out. I said, well, do you have any direction? Do you have any budget? He goes, well, I have no budget. He said, but they, the, the chairman... Uh, Fox Sports, you know, went on the Batman ride out in L.A., and he loved the darkness of the music. He said something like that, you know, kind of thing. And uh, I said, okay, that, at least that's something, you know. That's some, something to follow. Now, I had two of the greatest writers that I've ever worked with in my entire life in my company. And I, I you know, I, I have to say, again, I, I was at the right place at the right time, and so were they. And we, over the weekend, we produced three pieces of music, uh, pretty much all in the same key, all in the same tempo, but different melodies. Yeah. Um, and they all sounded really good. We knew we had something. We didn't know what we had, but we knew we had something. You know, and I sent it out to George, and he was living in Connecticut at the time, and he went out on the flight, and he had his interview on that Monday or Tuesday, and he calls me up. He goes, hey, you're not going to believe this, but I got the gig. But all they kept saying was, who did that music? They wanted to meet this guy in New York who did the music, you know. So they flew to New York that week, and, you know, the guy came up to the studio, and, you know, we, we played him the track, and he said, you know, and I've told this before, and it's actually in print, so it's not a scoop here, but he said, you know, I like the front of this piece, but I like the middle and the back end of this other one. Unfortunately, it was in the same key, and it was all in the Pro Tools grid, and my guy, Phil, was fast as heck and before David could finish his sentence he pro tools the front of the one part that he liked against the body of the other one that he liked and hit the play button and David went whoa you know <laughs> how did you do that well, you know 
Pro Tools just came out, you know, you could now manipulate music right. like a, like a word processor, right. right, on a grid. You could tempo map it, change keys, you could replace stuff, you know, it's, it was magic. And he goes, hey, man, he says, can you, can, you, can you come out to L.A. and do this for us for, you know, setting up the Fox Sports music department? I said, sure, you know. So I spent the next three, four years of my life, every couple of weeks, going out to L.A. and writing music for Fox Sports. So we did the NFL on Fox theme. We did Major League Baseball. We did NHL on Fox. We did NASCAR, boxing, college football. And, and so was, was one of the jingles that you played uh, in the studio session end up becoming the, the NFL? Yeah. Because you didn't know what sport it was going to be for. No, I did. I did. I knew it was football. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew it was people going on football you know, and killing themselves. And by the way, neither myself or my co-writers – Ever went to a football game? Wow! <laughs> so, so there was no like football being played or anything to inspire. No, the only inspiration that we got was that he went on a Batman ride in you know L.A. with his son, and he loved the darkness of that. You know, it was like a call to combat kind of thing. You know, mm. so then when the NFL on Fox scene was done, you know, it was it, it had that imagery of com- combat. You know. to it today you know you know it's like we're gonna go out there and you know knock the crap out of each other kind right. of thing. that was the idea behind it, it was a it was a, it was a minor key you know um and it it had a unique combination you know it had a unique combination and um it was it was a special theme and uh i've also said this so this is not a scoop either but it's a, it's a good little inside information you know as a drummer um you know, the drums sound good. You know, they, sound, they sounded good. Um, but they didn't sound great. The snare drum just didn't pop enough for me, you know. And I had a friend of mine who was a sample maniac. He just collected samples like baseball cards. And, he, and, he, and about two weeks before we, we started mixing NFL, he said to me, you, you want this snare drum? And he plays it for me on his, on his synclob. He had a synclob. It was, he said, that's Jeff Precaro's snare drum. You know, from Toto? From Toto. Yeah. So, he, said he sampled his snare drum. Wow. He says, you want it? I said, yeah, I want it, you know? But what I didn't tell everybody was every theme I ever did for, for, for Fox, I sampled the Jeff Precaro snare drum on. It's on football. It's on baseball. It's on hockey. It's on boxing. It's no on NASCAR. Way. It's on college. It, every theme I ever did, for, that was like... That was like my secret sauce to me inside the drums. It was Jeff Precaro's sampled snare drum over my drum. That is awesome. That, that was pretty cool. Well, look, it's funny that you brought that up too because mm. you know Toto's an amazing studio session. Oh yeah, band. Yeah, totally. Uh, like like iconic. Yeah, I think I think the guy's father. I don't remember which one, but did the the um, the bongos on Mission Impossible originally? Oh, get out. Dun 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 dun. dun. You know that? Yeah, yeah. I think it was Jeff's father who was a studio musician back there. And did you know, like, at that moment when, uh, you know, they they selected the music for for the football theme, that that was going to be the sound of the sport? Um, I knew it was going to be the sound of the sport because, you know, 
David Hill, who's a, a genius. I mean, the guy's, he's Australian. He's, he's Rupert's guy. You know, he, he married the graphics and the music and the announcer like it was, you know, the holy grail, you know. And I, I got to see the graphics before I did the music, you know. I, I knew they were going to be these giant robots. So I knew it had to play big, you know. I didn't know how big, but I knew it had to play really big. I didn't score anything to the robots back then, but I, I, I had an idea of what it was going to look like in my, in my mind, you know. Um, so, yeah, that, 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 that was like, you know, he set the bar so high. I mean, that, that theme, that combination, that sound has been copied by every major sports network, you know, that combination of, of dark, you know, up-tempo, big orchestral kind of stuff. You and know? I, I think you nailed it with combat. Yeah. Like, the, like when you think of going to battle. Yeah. You know, it has a very gladiator feel yeah. uh, to it as well. Yeah, that's right. A, a big gladiator feel to it. And, I've said that word as well. And in your process of, because yeah. you, you're arranging and composing the, the music, but let's say like the, like with the horn, so that's, is that being played by, by keys? Oh, yeah. We had, we, you know, um, like I said, you know, the two other guys that I worked with who were, you know, amazing musicians as well. I mean, they really were. Um, you know, one was a keyboard player and one was a, a cellist. And uh, as a drummer percussionist, you know, it was a really unique combination of elements that came together. Uh, but we recorded that piece of music in multiple studios, in multiple stages over months. Okay. It wasn't like we went into the studio, threw it together. You know, the original demo, yes, but the thing that wound up on air was actually, you know, our initial synth tracks were recorded in our studio. Um, then, you know, uh, we needed... More, more tracks than we could do on our, our 24 track. We needed 48 tracks. We needed to slave one of the multi-tracks. So we had to go to Record Plant to do that, to add more tracks, you know? And then we, then we took it out to uh, Utah to, to, to put the horns on in a really big church studio at a friend of mine. And then we mixed it at A&M Records out in L.A. You know, we, we obsessed, man. I mean, we, you know, that was my thing. You know, it still is my thing. You know, before a client hears a piece of music, you know, I'll hear it a thousand times, maybe more. You know, I, I won't just go, oh, that's the mix and send it to him. I'll listen to it and listen to it and listen to it until my ears bleed. I'll, you know, I have trusted speakers, trusted system, but then I'll take it home, listen to it in the car, you know, and then I'll listen to it on a radio. I'll listen to it on my TV. I'll throw it on my phone. You know, I'll listen to it a zillion ways to Sunday. You know, we have our little tricks of how to, how to tweak it at this point, you know, but it's a lot of work, man. It's not, it's just not... Turn the oh, of, cool. up of play, course, you know? of course. So yeah, it's it's it became a skill set, you know. As a, it's it's a labor of love, though. It's not something that you just when you do it, you know, you have it kind of thing, you know. And then when you when when a bar is set that high, every time somebody calls you, they expect you to do something at least as good as that, you know, sound wise at right. least, right? Maybe melodically, you're not going to nail it, you know, but you can come close. Uh, so you got to keep the, the 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 quality of the of the of the production as high as you can. And that takes a lot of work, man. And uh, it takes a lot of talented people, not one person. And that's where I think I was always blessed. Uh, and, you know, I've always tried to surround myself with people that were, you know, I thought at times, most of the time, better at what they do than what I do, you know. I wanted to touch on a little bit about, like, mm. the, the business aspect of uh, this world because of uh, sync licensing. And yeah. So, so is this like a situation where every single time it gets played yeah. in a movie or on television yeah. that you get a royalty or is it like a one-time thing? Yeah, yeah. So, so 
that's about a three-hour conversation that I'll whittle down to a couple of minutes, okay. right? So now you're talking about the latter part of my career. Uh, aside from the composing and the writing and the producing and the arranging and the studio musician thing and, and all that, I felt part of my good fortune uh, needed to be shared um, as best as I could while I had the ability to do it. So I... There's a lot of people out there that are talented that don't get to write the NFL and Fox team, but they do get to write music, and, but they don't get paid for it because the way performance income works with BMI and ASCAP, the two performing rights organizations, the big ones in the United States, there's a third called CSAC. Um, the music has to be reported by the broadcaster in order for the royalty payments for the composition to the art, to the writers, to, mm -hmm. to get the royalty payments. Uh, unfortunately, that's the weak link in, the, in, 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 in this business, in the TV music business, um, because th it's riddled with errors and omissions. Um, we can go into all the reasons why, but it's just been a manual reporting process. And it's just froth with inaccuracies, un under and non-reported uses of music. So it becomes a game of numbers. You need to have a big market share in order to get a decent amount of performance royalties. Because only a, a percentage of what you actually airs will get reported accurately. Okay. Right. So, as I said, a lot of guys weren't as fortunate as me to, as me to have a high-profile theme like NFL or others like that. Uh, but they deserve just as much to get reported and, and earn royalties just as I did. Uh, so I got involved in the technology space like 20 years ago. And it's been um, the focus of my last 20 years other than the music thing. And uh, I wanted to see if I was able to use my relationships and my knowledge of the industry and using technology to automate the process of reporting using technology. And I've been very fortunate that uh, with the stick to nature of me to begin with and, and just the tenacity that I have, you know, to, to hold on to the, to the tree. Um, I've been able to start a global technology company uh, called TuneSat. And we're, we have about 10,000 worldwide subscribers now. Been at it publicly since 2009. And uh, we've got about 50 million songs fingerprinted in our database. And um, we're able to report the use of uh, our users' music um, within minutes of it airing anywhere we're monitoring in 14 countries around the world. So for the first time, people can actually see you know, full transparency and accountability of when and where your music's playing. It's like the most valuable tool a, a, a rights owner could possibly have. Instead of somebody saying, yeah, we think your music played, or yeah, it played, but we didn't get it in in time, or we didn't report it because we didn't know about it, we didn't know the name of it, we didn't know where it played. Now they have the ability, at least, to know when, where, how long it played within minutes of the broadcast if they wow. subscribe to the technology. And it's amazingly affordable. So, um, you know, the goal was to be able to give people the ability to at least have the ammunition they needed to fight the fight to get paid. And yeah, that was the early stages of the, the, uh, of the technology. You know, we've since 
advance that into protecting uh, copyrights, the unauthorized, you know, with the explosion of the internet, there's a tremendous amount of music being used um, by major artists or major publishers. I'm talking about the Universals, the Sonys, the BMGs of the world, unauthorized uses of the music by major, you know, Fortune 1000, Fortune 500 companies. Maybe not intentional, but the writers and the rights holders still deserve to get paid nevertheless. Right. So um, we've used the technology now to uh, enforce unauthorized uses of uh, copyrights all around the world. Um, so and, and, and how do uh, independent writers uh, sign up to TuneSat? It's easy. You go to TuneSat.com and everything's right there. It tells you where we monitor. You can upload your music auto automatically you know, through the website. You can drop it off on a hard drive or a thumb drive and it gets fingerprinted in the system. You get your own account that only you can see, and uh, you can start monitoring for it like within a day or two. Wow, it's that's pretty remarkable. It, it it is remarkable, and um, it continues to get better and bigger and uh, more important in the industry. You know, as 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 the industry grows to more of a micro transaction, you know, as far as all the all the websites that are all the digital transmission of music. It's counterintuitive to think that it could be done any other way other than using technology to, to accurately report it. So, um, and, and I kind of jumps into like my next question because yeah. I wanted to ask, what was the biggest transition in your 44-year <laughs> career of getting into this business and to where it is now? Do you think that, that technology is that, that major difference? Uh, no, I don't, actually. I think that's a tool in the toolkit. I think the major difference was when I started, to get a record to sound like a record, you needed to go into a studio that had, you know, a million dollars worth of equipment. You know, a Neve console and outboard gear and compressors and, you know, digital processors and multi-tracks and mm -hmm. mixed down machines. Today, I could almost <laughs> get it to sound as good on my iPhone 10, almost, you know, than I could have walking into a studio. But what that has done is freaking amazing because it has put the power of accessibility to talent with no barrier to entry other than being able to go out and buy a hundred or two hundred dollar piece of gear right and you know you don't need a lot of money to show how talented you are and get it in front of somebody anymore that is amazing that was the transition point in my opinion was when the technology became accessible enough for someone who, under normal circumstances, when I was coming into this, would never in a million years have access to the type of equipment that they needed to get it to sound professional? No more. Turn on YouTube, man. YouTube's the new radio. You know, that, that's it. There is so much talent, and I, every day I am blown away. I, I thank my lucky stars that I got into the business, and my success came when it came, because the odds of it would have happened today if I came into it today would be exponentially against me because of the amount of talent that has now come, become into the public eye because of the accessibility of the technology. Well, one thing about you as well from, from you know, meeting you here today that has really, really strikes me uh, is that you, you're very, you seem like a very innovative, up-to-date guy. Like what keeps you innovative and what keeps you up-to-date? Because you know, a lot of people in the transition of when Pro Tools came about, when that technology gap came, didn't catch up with that technology. Um, 
and even now with TuneSat, right? Like you're you're keeping up to date with technology. What keeps you innovative? Because it's not it's it's one being talented. I think is just one part of the component of being successful. Um, the other part is is hard work, but the other part is to reinvent yourself um, over and over and over again. What has kept you to you know, Corey, I've been asked way. a lot of questions. <laughs> That's a really good question. And without sound like a complete pompous ass, uh, I'm a rock turner, you know? I just turn over rocks. I'm not afraid about to find what's underneath if there's nothing there, you know? I just, I have a, a big curious mind, you know? And I'm always thinking, and um, I'm trying to think outside the box, but trying to use sensibility and reasonableness and whatever intelligence I have, you know, to try and figure stuff out. Um, you know, I, I just instinctively think right or wrong. And if the green light goes on in my brain, that's the path I take. I don't care how many no's I get. If I really believe I'm right, and I don't always think I'm right, you know, but if I get that idea and I see it, like reading a score, you know, I, I'm not blessed like some people I know where they could look at a score and they can hear everything on that score paper looking at it. They can hear it. I can't, unless it's my music. But I can see things like that. And if I could hear that score in my mind, that's it. What advice? I don't do you, know if that answers the question. No, no I, I, think, I think you answered it. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's just one of those things that, you know, is always going to be a challenge, and I think that's what really sets you apart and why you're able to to stay in this industry and with having a 44 year career. Most rappers, I come from, yeah. the, I, I'm a I'm a rapper. Yeah. I come from a hip hop background. You have a five year shelf life. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. you have five years when you're hot, yeah. and then you're not. Yeah. And it's very very rare as you uh, look at a rapper's like prolonged career. Yeah. The ones who've stayed around have been able to keep up with what's Current it's and what's more relevant. than that, though, you know, because I've I've seen talent come in front of me that has blown me away, and they can't make it to first base. Hmm. You know, it it's it's a karmic thing too, though. You know, it's it's how you handle yourself in life. Having the ability is just part of it. How you execute against it is part of it. How you how you how you treat people is part of it. How you think is part of it. It's a combination of things that go into that bucket. Having the talent alone doesn't do it. You know, you can have the gift of talent, but not ever make it. But if you have less talent, but you have vision, and you have stick-to-itiveness, and you have uh, tenacity, and, you ha and you're humble, and you live a clean life, and I don't mean you know, you, you, li you live a good life. I believe in all that. And I believe it all strings together to make a success, if that's what success is to you. Well, one thing that, uh, one reason why I started this podcast yeah. uh, was because that, you know, for a lot of kids, they want to grow up to, to be Jay-Z or they want to grow up to yeah. be LeBron James. Yeah. Um, very similar to you wanting to be yeah. uh, a baseball, baseball player. player. Yeah. And, you know, I liked, I wanted to show people that, hey, look, you can make it in this in uh, in this industry of music or, or sports, whatever you're passionate about in multiple different ways. You may not be able to be LeBron, but you could be his trainer or his nutritionist or you could be right. a general manager. Um, how did it feel for you being a baseball fan and, you know, 
being a lover of the sport and all of a sudden your score was yeah. the soundtrack of like the World Series, you know? Yeah, so I, and those are really good questions. You know, I, it's, it's really hard to articulate what it feels like, uh, being really upfront, you know? Um, I try not to think about it, you know? Um, I, try, I try not to think about it. I, I, I do appreciate it, um, and I think it's great that I, I was able to get a shot at doing that. But I really try not to think about it, because uh, if I thought about it, I'd probably be disturbed by it. And then it would, I would try and ans ask myself questions that I, I know I don't have the answers to. Uh, disturbed by it, how so? Uh, okay, uh, like, a, like a why me kind of thing. Mm. You know, like why me? You know, I mean, you can really, you could peel that, you can peel that back. You know, I, I, I don't think I really want to, you know, yeah. I mean. I just, you know, I stopped myself from really patting myself on the back or, you know, talking about it much. But now that I'm getting older, you know, I don't mind talking about it because if I'm not going to talk about it now, you know, when am I going to talk about it, you know? Um, dude, I've been doing this for 44 years. 44 years, you know? I started when I was 20, and I'm 64. Wow. Right? You know, and that's that's a long career, and I'm not done. No, not, no, not, I'm not, not done. You know, we just did the uh, the World Cup soccer theme, and it sounds like every bit as good as anything else we've ever done. So, you know, we're uh, I don't know, man. Like, I, I try not to ask why me. You know, I just I just I'm thankful, and you know, I I try and treat people like I like to be treated, or I I expect to be treated, and. You know, somebody once told me character is, <laughs> is, is not how you act in front of people. It's how you act when no one's looking, mm. you know. And that's how, I try to that's how I try to live my life and, you know, treat people and my family and my business like that. And, uh, you know, I try not to step on the cracks. You know, I just, I just try and keep it straight. And with the, uh, with the final question yeah. uh, of the interview, yeah. uh, I want to ask you, you know, you uh, you you create theme songs and, and jingles that people recognize uh, all yeah. around the world. What would be your theme song and jingle uh, for the life of Scott Schreer? Well, what would be my theme song? I, I try not to think in those terms, you know. I, yeah, I know I'm getting on in years, you know, and I know eventually, you know. You know but uh, still young. Yeah, but you know, I, I don't think about it, but I, I... I just turned 30 and I had one of those moments. Yeah, I was know, like, man, you know? You know, every once in a while I see somebody <laughs> that I know, I knew or know, or don't know, but know of, and, you know, they'll, they'll have their obituary in the paper. <laughs> this is not a great way to end a, an interview, but, you know, they'll say, oh, and so-and-so who wrote so-and-so passed away yesterday, you know? I just don't want to be remembered by, you know, so-and-so who wrote the NFL and Fox, you know, who produced it. I, I don't want to be known for that, you know? I'd rather be known as, he was a good, this guy was a good guy, you know? He treated people like he wanted to be treated. And, you know, he, 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 he lived a decent life. You know, I think, from my, from my perspective of, of Scott Shear and the work you've done, is that you have contributed to something. Oh, yeah. That is. I feel that. I that feel will, you. That resonates. My little sister, and I, I said this when we came in today, my little sister doesn't know, doesn't know anything about football. Yeah. Besides, like. Maybe a player or two, yeah. but 
I didn't say yeah. who I'm interviewing. Yeah. I said, hey, Chelsea, I'm interviewing. Dun -dun 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 -dun. Yeah. And she recognized it. And yeah. I think that's like what life is about. Yeah. I hear you. You know, I've traveled. I, I really. I, that's a part of what life yeah, is yeah. about. Yeah, I, I traveled. I, I don't necessarily like traveling anymore. You know, um, I'm, I'm not big on seeing the world kind of thing. But, you know, if I got chosen to get on a Musk trip, one way trip to Mars, and I had to get on that thing tomorrow, see ya. <laughs> I got family, people I love and adore me, great career. I'm fascinated by where we all came from. What, what, how did it happen? Is this, you know, the Matrix? Are we, are we in someone's, you know, computer program here? You know, what's out there? You know, that why me thing, I want to know the answer before I go. And if I could, if I could find that, I'd feel like, I'm, you know, I, I feel like I accomplished something. That would make me feel like I accomplished something, you know? Yeah. Well, Scott Schreer. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for being here today. It was this, fun, man. This you is, asked some really good questions. This, I really appreciate this it. This is honestly, man. you know, uh, uh, one of the greatest moments of my journalistic career. Oh, man, come on. I, 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 look, it literally started from watching the game yeah. with my boy being like, dude, yeah. this is the most recognizable song. I can yeah. spot this out of anywhere. Yeah. And to be with you two weeks later is just remarkable. Well, so I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm glad, man. I had a good time, and uh, I wish you a lot of luck with your podcast. Yeah, the man. All I right, appreciate man. you. Thanks, Corey. Good to meet you. My man. Okay. Thank you so much to the Silent Giants behind this episode of the Silent Giants podcast. This episode has been mixed by Mark Bird of MBM Studios, located in Astoria, Queens, NYC's number one recording studio for music, podcasting, and other audio recordings. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at MBM Studios NYC. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off till next time. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.